In modern times, one of the most difficult issues leaders are faced with is helping those who struggle with mental health. No longer can we simply encourage a good measure of scripture study and prayer and expect everyone's life to stabilize. This is why Leading Saints felt it was so important to organize the Mentally Healthy Saints Library. There, one can find 25 plus presentations all about ministering to those who struggle with mental health. We cover topics like depression, anxiety, scrupulosity, or OCD. We even cover how to effectively refer individuals to professional therapists and make sure they are getting the help they need. This and so much more. If you'd like to review all of these sessions, we would love to have you do so at no cost. You can visit leadingsaints.org 14 and get access to the full library for 14 days. You'll also receive access to all our virtual libraries where we cover additional leadership related topics. So click the link in the show notes or simply visit leadingsaints.org 14. Today, we're headed to Virginia to talk with uh, Bart Sloat. Welcome to Leading Saints, Bart. It's great to be here. Thanks, Kurt. Nice. Now, you were just released uh, from uh, serving as stake president because you got a mission call. Uh, how do, uh, what's the story behind that? Well, unexpectedly, uh, as I'm sure most of those callings are. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I'd served as uh, president of the Chesapeake, Virginia stake since 2014. And uh, this last fall was issued a call, uh, my wife and I to serve as mission leaders. So we're been assigned to serve in the Hawaii Honolulu mission and, uh, wow. we're excited. <laughs> so, I mean, what's, what's that like opening a call to Hawaii, especially, you know, you're, you, you've agreed to three years of your life sort of dedicated to this service and, you know, you go anywhere and you've got some military background. So you've, you've probably seen some scary places you're ready for it all. And then it says Hawaii. And I mean, what's that feeling like? Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> it, it was, uh, very unexpected. Uh, I, I kind of had thought, uh, you know, of course we received the call in, uh, in October and you don't find your out your assignment until early in December. Mm-hmm. And so you go a couple months. And so you, you know, you look back on the, at the mission openings that, you know, the missions are going to open up this summer. And so you oh, start. Okay. <laughs> then that went through the family and they all made their guesses as to, you know, where we're going to be assigned to serve. And, and no one, no one guessed a white, uh, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of guesses in the Southwest United States and, uh, other places, but, uh, yeah, it, uh, and I've, you know, of course I've had a lot of people ask me why, you know, how, how did you get assigned to Hawaii? And, <laughs> Nice. <laughs> uh, my answer, my answer is I just tell them, look, I said, if, if maybe if you spend more time in Iraq and Afghanistan, you would have got assigned to Hawaii. You know, that's, <laughs> that's right. That's- nice. And uh, did you serve a mission as a young man? I did. Yeah. I served in the Nevada, Las Vegas mission. Okay. All right. Back in 78 to 80. So, nice. and if I'm remembering, they just announced a new mission in Hawaii, but you're taking over the, the older one. Is that right? Right. Yep. In January, they created the Hawaii Laia mission. It's up around uh, BYU, Hawaii and the, the uh, Polynesian cultural center. So they have uh, about five stakes up there with that new mission. 
and we have the rest of the Hawaiian islands. So nice. we're, we're excited. We'll, we'll do quite a bit of island hopping from, for three years. Yeah, I bet. I bet. So let's just start with a little bit uh, of the foundation of your background and whatnot, because we're, we're going to explore, you know, different leadership opportunities you've had from being a bishop, stake president and, and other uh, responsibilities as well, especially as a Marine. Um, but uh, wh- where does it all, where was a good introduction for, for Bart Sloat here? <laughs> well, I, I think it goes to my parents. Um, and it's a, it's a classic uh, tale. It's kind of, you know, reminiscent of Elder Uchtdorf's uh, talking about his wife's uh, family's conversion, you know, the last floor, last door. Uh, mm-hmm. It was uh, two missionaries in 1961 on the coast of Maine uh, had parked their car on the edge of a small town and tracked it all day. This is in March. So March is a nasty month, <laughs> especially in Maine hmm. and wet and cold and and uh, they tracked it all day with no success and come back and we're just about back to their car. And there was this one house that was left that long driveway kind of out in the country. And, and, uh, one of the missionaries turned and said, let's, let's just go home. You know, this, and the other one said, no, let's, let's just go knock on that door. So we don't have to come back out here again uh, yeah. and get it over with. And so they knock on the door and my mother answered the door. I was two years old. Um, but, uh, she answered the door and asked the missionaries to come back the next night when my, uh, later when my father would be home from work and, uh, came back and a month later, my parents and older brother and sister were baptized. And, wow. And, you know, from this perspective now, you know, one of the things that I most marvel at is that, um, my parents, uh, Harley and Clara Sloat. Um, from that day, they were baptized April 8th, 1961, and they never looked back. Hmm. They were, they were all in, um, from day one. And that's been one of the great blessings of my life. Nice. And then, um, when did the decision as far as your military service come into that? Was that something you always planned to do? Uh, yes and no. My father was a Marine, uh, served in world, world war two, uh, as a young man, 17 years old, uh, you know, everyone served, <laughs> you know, people forget that in Jan- you know, December of 1945, there were 12 million Americans on active duty. And, um, then he was called back in, uh, for the Korean war, uh, didn't go to Korea. The war ended before, uh, he was shipped over there. And then my brother, Greg had gone to BYU for a year and then, uh, 67 to 68. And of course the Vietnam war was, uh, at the peak of its, uh, operations then. And, and he didn't, he just felt an, a duty and obligation to serve. So he, he, uh, enlisted in the Marine Corps and became a combat correspondent, went to Vietnam in 1970 and was killed in action in February of 1971. Wow. And so when I came back from my mission, um, in 1980, uh, I didn't want to, I didn't want to be an obligation to my parents anymore. And, uh, so every day when I walked to work, I was saving money to go back to college. And when I walked to work, I had to walk past a recruiting office. And so finally one day I just walked in and to see what the, what the, uh, opportunities might be. And of course the only, the only one I talked to was a Marine because 
that was in my DNA. I, yeah. you know, I couldn't walk, <laughs> I couldn't walk into any of the other, any of the other branches of the service. So yeah, that's the, that's what brought me into the Marine Corps. And, uh, after a couple of years in, I, I was able to get into the Marine enlisted commissioning education program, ended up at the university of Utah, um, was commissioned in 85 as an infantry officer and spent 32 years on active duty. Wow. And, and so it was, uh, was it always planned for you for that to be your career or early on? Did you No, I, I think that when I first went in, it was going to be, I was going to do my four years and get out and, uh, yeah. you know, educational opportunities, go back to school. But then I found the educational opportunities in the Marine Corps and, uh, and essentially they, they paid me to go to school and that was a good thing. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it was, uh, and then, you know, when you finish that obligation, you had 10 years in and you, when you're at 10, then you're like, okay, it's only another 10 to get to 20 years. And, but it was a unique Marine Corps career because in the sense that I spent essentially 20 years in, in what I'll call the peacetime Marine Corps, uh, from nine, you know, and then nine 11 happened. And then I spent the next 12 years in, uh, you know, engaged in, in combat operations, both in Iraq and Afghanistan. So. Yeah. And uh, I would imagine many leadership opportunities came to you in the military long before they came to you in the church. Yeah. Uh, you know, some, both, uh, you know, I was called into a bishopric at a young age. So that was, that was a great opportunity. And, uh, I learned a lot, had a great bishop to serve with, but yeah, the Marine Corps, uh, becoming an infantry officer, I commanded, you know, started out with a, a rifle platoon commanding about, you know, 40, 45 Marines and then, uh, served as a company commander. So you, you know, you've got about a hundred and 160 Marines under your command as a company commander. And then had the opportunity uh, in uh, Iraq to serve as a battalion commander with about 1,200 Marines uh, in my command. And then my last tour was as a regimental commander, and I had about 3,500 Marines and sailors. Nice. And so a lot, of, I, lot, I, lot of opportunities. I bet. I bet. So, I mean, as a civilian here, and most of the civilians that are listening to this, you know, we just have the watered down version that Hollywood gives us as far as what military <laughs> leadership looks like. And, and from all I know, it involves a lot of, a lot of yelling, I guess that's what they make it look like. But uh, how would you describe just like the process that the military puts someone like you through in order to uh, become a better leader? Well, that's a great question. I, I think for the Marine Corps, every Marine officer goes to the, what we call the basic school in Quantico, Virginia. So everyone goes through that and it's basic, you know, very infantry centric, uh, leadership centric, uh, where they put you through a lot of scenarios. Uh, you know, it's the famous question, what now Lieutenant, right. Mm. Uh, they throw a situation in front of you and, and cause they're trying to see, can you, can you function under pressure? Can you make quick decisions? And, and can you use the process that they teach you as, as to, um, you know, thinking clearly and, and making good, good decisions. And so you, you, you go through that, you know, interesting that you said, you know, a lot of yelling, I, I found, you know, I, and I work for every kind of leader, right. The good, the bad, the ugly and, and the, and the outstanding and the best leaders don't yell. <laughs> the best leaders are the ones you don't want to let down. Uh, you just don't want to let them down. Um, so yeah, I think that, that, that's a lot of, 
that goes into the leadership. I, you know, my, my <laughs> I find that people that um, the best leaders are the people are the leaders that are, are around people. They know people. Hmm. Uh, there was a great article years ago I read. It was on Abraham Lincoln, and uh, it was Lincoln on Leadership is the book. And, it, and he, they talk about leadership by walking around, mm-hmm. uh, getting out, being, you know, Lincoln was famous for, you know, he had insomnia. So at 2 o'clock in the morning, he'd walk down to the telegraph office in the White House and just sit there and talk to the clerk, you know, and, uh, and he'd learn a lot as to what was going on, just sitting there listening to the clerk. and. But I had a great uh, experience once as a, uh, I was actually going to school in Quantico and we had, uh, you know, lead- different leadership seminars that were always part of the curriculum. And a uh, Marine Colonel came in and taught us a great truth. It, it just always stuck with me. He said, uh, he said, when you've got a young Marine standing in front of you, that's in some kind of trouble and, and affectionately referred to as a knucklehead. Uh, and there's lots of knuckleheads uh, and most of us have been knuckleheads at some point in our life. He, uh, he said, just remember that somewhere in America, there's an eight by 10 picture of that Marine and he's the most important person in the whole world. Wow. I love that. And you know, that, that just always stuck with me um, because it's true. You know, somewhere out there in America, there's a family uh, and they looked at that, that young Marine and he was the most important person in the world. And, you know, that has application when you're sitting at a bishop's in a bishop's chair or as a stake president's chair. Right. And you're looking at that person and you realize and I think you begin to have a little bit of a feel for how how the Lord looks at us. Yeah. In a little bit better way than than sometimes how we look at look at each other. We're there. Um, just thinking back to your time, you know, especially in those early years as a, as a Marine, were there specific or a specific mentor that taught you a lot about uh, leadership more than others? Yeah, I, I think as I look back, um, I had some great leaders and, and a couple of my later leaders really, uh, when I was a major Lieutenant Colonel, uh, in, the, in those ranks um, that just taught me some simplicity of leadership. And, and one of them that, that I've always remembered is that, um, you know, he would always say that the road to success is always under construction and you got to keep it simple. Hmm. And, and he believed that, and I think this has application in the gospel um, that, that people that you're leading only care about four things. That's, this is how simple he, he liked to put it. <laughs> the number one, they have to know that you really care about them, that you really care. Number two, that you really care about their family and not just pay lip service to it, but that you want to make sure their family's taken care of. And number three, that you're fair. And number four, that you're consistent. And he said, if you do those four things, They'll follow you anywhere and do anything. But as soon as one of those four things starts to break down, you're going to start having problems. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, that, and that, that, that's such a foundational uh, thing, you know, that obviously it's not that you don't, you don't figure out 
leadership when you're in, you know, in a tough spot in a, in a battle and you're under fire, right? Like you've, you've got to build this foundation and connection and whatnot. So that in those moments that is when that are the most crucial, they'll be, they'll be more than willing to trust and to follow. Yeah. I always tried to follow a practice of when I, when, you know, and we, we talk about giving an order, issuing an order, uh, would always try to explain why. Hmm because I knew the day would come when I wouldn't have the opportunity to tell them why you just, you don't have time. Yeah. You just right? got to do it. Yeah. So you just got to do it. And, and because you've built up a trust because when you've had the opportunity, you've told them why, and it made sense to them and it clicked in their minds. So now when you don't have the opportunity to tell them why, then they're going to trust you and say, okay, he knows what he's doing. Uh, let's just make it happen. Get it done. And, you know, Elder Oaks, uh, President Oaks years ago gave, you know, that instruction on very seldom does the Lord, when the Lord gives a commandment, does he tell you why? Mm -hmm. Very, very seldom in the scriptures does the Lord say why? Um, He certainly didn't tell Adam why, right? He just (laughs) told him to offer sacrifice and Adam didn't know why, but he did it. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so at, at what point did, uh, did church leadership opportunities start for you? Like the real heavy leadership uh, roles? <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that's a standing joke with my wife and I, because most of my Marine Corps career, she was the primary president, the Relief Society president, <laughs> you know, multiple times in different wards. Uh, and I was, you know, occasionally in a couple of different places. I was in the bishopric once served on the high council and then, we got here to Virginia and as things started to wind down, uh, just two years before I retired from the Marine Corps, I was called as a Bishop. Hmm. And, uh, so that, that definitely, uh, changed. Nice. nice. <laughs> and I found that, uh, and I, you know, I found that some of my leadership techniques in the Marine Corps did not work as uh, leadership <laughs> oh. techniques as the Bishop of the ward. <laughs> okay. And that, that I definitely want to get into before we jump there. Is there anything else about your early, you know, your, your military career, I guess, in general, uh, that we need to make sure we mention before we move on? Well, there are some really satisfying things that come about as serving. Um, one of the things I just share with listeners is that, I remember in 2004, we opened a girls school in Jalalabad, um, Afghanistan. And, you know, I can still see there were probably 30, 35, maybe 40 little girls, probably, you know, ages, maybe eight down to five, all lined up waiting to go into the school. And they're all holding hands in this long line. And, uh, and it was just heartwarming because they, they had never had the opportunity to go to school before. Right. There were there was there were no schools for girls. Uh, and so just to see that and th- those kind of things, it, when you when you have impact on people's children, uh, their their understanding and their view of you changes. Mm. When, when somebody does something good for your child. Uh, you, you view them differently. <laughs> And, and it's just, I think that's universal across the world. And so yeah. when you help a child, um, it, it changes opinions. Um, there was a, just a quick, quick story. Uh, there was a, in 2004, there were 
as units would change. There was a Utah National Guard unit that was leaving Afghanistan and one that was coming in. So they have about a two week turnover uh, before, you know, before while one comes in, they make do a extended turnover. And so that one Sunday in um, Bagram Air Base, we had a pre we had church, we had a priesthood meeting and there were over 200 members of the church. And I thought there, this is probably April of 2004. I thought this is probably the largest gathering of priesthood in the, in Afghanistan ever. Right. Uh, And probably uh, may, may never have happened after that. Who knows? But there was this uh, one, he was getting ready to go home, but he'd, uh, he and uh, they'd been in a, a medical unit and they'd had a uh, set up at a forward operating base to support uh, some special forces units. And they would do some medical care for some of the local people from time to time when they, when they could, but primarily they were there for the, for the American servicemen. Well, this, this one night, this, uh, he was actually an uh, imam comes in with this little girl, his daughter, who was probably, about four or five years old, and she'd fallen into a fire pit and burned both of her legs quite significantly. And he'd taken her to an Afghan uh, doctor, and he had examined her legs and recommended that they be amputated uh, because of the severity of the burns. And and her father didn't want to amputate the legs, so he, he takes her and brings her down to this U.S. serviceman you know, base and, um, and so these, these two medics from Utah, you know, six, six foot blonde hair, blue eyed, uh, kind of guys, uh, they treated this little girl, uh, cleaned her legs the best they could bandaged them. And they did that. He brought her back every day. And, you know, for over two months, they, they took care of this little girl and long story short, they, they saved her legs, uh, and about a few weeks after that, after she was, you know, didn't have to come back every day, uh, her father came back. Uh, again, he's a Muslim uh, imam. And he said, all of everything I've been told about America, I now know to be false. Wow. And because of that experience, uh, he saw these American servicemen very gently, very humanely, uh, very lovingly save his daughter and save her legs. And that forever changed his view of Americans and who we were. And, and, you know, it's those kind of things that you realize that's, that's when you're making a difference. Yeah. And then, uh, so were these de- like official deployments to Afghanistan and Iraq that you Never. had or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I did, uh, Roughly about nine major deployments. When we, in the Marine Corps, when we say major deployments, that means six months or more. Uh, most most deployments were six or seven months. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, anything else around that sort of that military career that we we haven't touched on? Oh, I think uh, that's some that's, Yeah, okay. I think that's good. Cool. Uh, you don't you don't want to hear too many war stories. <laughs> well, I will say though that you know, and this goes back to when you say teaching about leadership, and and you've heard it before because um, 
who was it? Uh, Victor Frankl's uh, his famous quote on you know the, there's a space between stimulus and response, right? And in that space, we have the ability to choose, and in the choice, in that choice lies our growth and our progress. And and of course, you know, in the military, teaching that you know between stimulus and response can be a split second decision, right? And and teaching leadership is about you know that's um, why repetition is so important, right? That you you do drills over and over and over again so that you can do them with muscle memory. You don't have to think too much about it. And I was I was having that discussion recently with some youth. Uh, and of course, it's probably lost today because none of them learn how to drive a, a standard transmission. Right? <laughs> I know, right? It's a lost art. <laughs> but, but do you remember, do you remember the concentration it took to drive? Oh yeah. A, you know, you I remember, I remember thinking time. I'd never get it. I just thought right. I just, my brain right. was not built for this. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and then, you know, at some point you stop thinking about it. Yeah. It just becomes automatic. Well, you know, it's those kind of repetition, those kind of drills that you seek to to learn so that that space between stimulus and response is um, that you make the right choice yeah. um, and, yeah. and do that. But so I think that's, there's a lot about leadership in, in that. Yeah. I mean, that's something that all leaders could consider and think about and revelation will flow. You know, the more you think about just that concept. Yeah. Um, so tell me about just transitioning, you know, you've had this career of just dynamic leadership and in, in the Marines and, and, you know, some of the best leadership training I'm sure that's out there and then transitioning to, uh, you know, uh, being a lay leader in your local, uh, your local congregation. So, I mean, what did you, did you try? You mentioned some of these things and you realized it was very different. Oh, yeah. Uh, what, what stories come I'm, to mind? I'm embarrassed to say it, but, I, but, uh, I remember the very first ward council that I set down as, as the Bishop, right. Newly set apart Bishop. And I, you know, I'd been in ward councils before. And, uh, this, this is so, you know, I'll just state up front that, that now I realize I was 180 degrees off. Um, but <laughs> first time I sat there, I can remember looking around the table, you know, everyone's there, primary, really society, young men, young women, young, we still had young men then, uh, presidency, elders form, high priest, group leader, et cetera. And I, and I can, I can remember saying, look, stay in your lane. Okay. <laughs> Okay. That's something we preach all the time in the Marine Corps. You know, the Marine Corps, I, I didn't want the logistics officer tell me about operations. Okay, you stay in your lane. Just tell me about logistics. Can you support the operation? And so I, I transitioned that into, you know, the ward council and told everyone to stay in their lane. Uh, I don't need the relief society president uh, telling about, uh, you know, the elders quorum, you know, what they need to do. Uh, and now I realize, you know, there are no lanes, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so as state president, I can remember, you know, repeatedly saying there are no lanes. You know, if you feel prompted to say something, you need to say it because there's somebody here that needs to hear it. So, yeah. uh, please speak up. And then, you know, then you always look around the room and say, okay, who hasn't, who hasn't, uh, commented here today? Let's, uh, let's hear from them. Yeah. So yeah, that, that, that was something that didn't transition well. <laughs> <laughs> what about just in general, the things that you felt more prepared for, were there certain uh, habits or 
uh, you know, assignments or circumstances that you felt you were more empowered to, to lead in? Yeah. Well, you know, funny about that is, you know, Marines are young. Um, most of the Marines you're leading are, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old. So, and you know, usually not all that mature, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so youth dealing with, uh, with the youth was, was pretty natural. Um, and get, you know, being around the, being around the youth, both the young women and, and the young men. And, and that was to me, the, probably the most, uh, joyous part of, and, and I love, you know, where the brethren have led us in the transition, you know, doing away with the young men's presidency and getting the bishopric, uh, you know, fully invested and, you know, and it's a paradigm shift in the church, right? It's, uh, as, uh, one of, one of the things I did as stake president, every time that we'd call a new Bishop, um, after he was sustained and then at the end of the meeting, I would stand up and, and I would call the Bishop up, up to stand up beside me at the pulpit. And I'd say, okay, now everyone here that's 18 years old and younger, please stand up. So all the youth, the primary children, all the youth, they all stand up in the congregation. And I say, put my arm around the Bishop and say, if you're standing up right now, this is your man. This is your man. And if you're sitting down right now, this is not your man. And it's, you know, we're getting there, but you know, and you have to teach bishops too. bishops. You have to resist uh, having those adults come into your office and spend, you know, repeated repeated time in your office. You've got to push it off. Uh, if that's the right word, maybe that's not the right word, but you've got to, uh, reassign it to the elders form or the release society and let the person know that, uh, you know, they've done what they need to do. And now they need to, to lock in with the release society president or one of her counselors or the elders form president, one of his counselors and, and move forward. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's a paradigm shift and. Yeah. And well, I, I love that. Just, creating that visual, you know, that experiential moment, you know, in front of the ward of really, you know, having those youth and those children stand up and, and sort of drawing that line (laughs) saying, this is where I want your, your focus or whatnot. And obviously there's other things outside of that, but yeah. And to be truthful, I did it more for the adults than I did for the youth. Yeah, sure. (laughs) What I was really saying was if you're sitting down right now, leave the Bishop alone. Uh, yeah you know, leave the bishop alone uh, yeah. you know there, there there are times you need to come see the bishop and and you'll know when those times are but yeah. uh for the most part um yeah I, I i love where it's going yeah and anything else that you did as far as I, like if there's any question most recently that uh we've received at leading saints is around this this transition you know sort of that emphasis of the the Bishop having a higher emphasis on the youth and, you know, the, then the elders corn president, at least I president sort of taking a, a larger role in award. Is there anything else you did to, to really make that work? Cause I, I feel like there's a lot of wards sort of floundering, uh, trying to, or stakes as well. They're trying to figure out the best way to execute that. Yeah. I think part of it is you have to talk about it and, and you have to, we made it a focus in, in ward counts and I mean, ward conferences, uh, when we have the Relief Society and Priesthood uh, together, and, and then the youth would be separated in, in, in another classroom. And we talked to the, 
mostly to adults about the fact that, you know, the elders quorum has, you know, the elders quorum president has priesthood keys and he can receive revelation and uh, guidance to, to help counsel you and, and help you move along the covenant path. And it, it really comes down to um, uh, helping them understand that, you know, the, the bishop's main responsibility is with the youth of the church. And when I, th- I think it, I think we're getting there, at least it feels like we are here. Um, I don't know if there's any magic. Uh, I know there's no magic <laughs> <laughs> remedy to it. It's just, uh, but I, I do think part of it is just talking about it. Is, yeah. uh, Keeping it top of mind. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 So uh, did you go from being the, the bishop straight into being the stake president? Yeah, I served as bishop for about four and a half years when I was called as a stake president. Nice, nice. And uh, what, what did you find uh, sort of surprising in that transition or whatnot? I mean, I, I remember a similar transition from bishop to the stake presidency where I just thought I was going to be, you know, a, a bishop, but a sort of on a higher level. But I realized it was a much different dynamic. But what was yeah. your experience like? Well, one of the things you realize, I think, this I'm making a general statement, but, you know, uh, wards have people, stakes have wards. Uh, and so a big aspect of any stake calling is leadership uh, in, in training, teaching and training bishoprics, elders, form presidencies, you know, for the release, for the stake relief society, release society presidencies of stake young women to, you know, that was, that's what we tried to stay on top of was as soon as a new young women's president is called, you want the stake relief, the stake young women's presidency to be connected with them, you know, as quickly as possible to help, help them. Um, because, you know, with just the way callings come in the church, right. Some, some women are called into young women and they haven't been in young women's ever. Uh, some have only been in young women's when they were a young woman and a lot has changed since they were in young women's. Right. So those kind of, so I think state callings is about leadership and training and the best leaders are, are great teachers. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Uh, anything else about your time as Bishop or state president that we haven't touched on or principle that would be worth discussing in that context? Well, um, a pattern that that you know it's very applicable to the calling we're we're moving towards, but it was also a big one for I think uh, as bishop and as stake president was that of uh, who you're converted to um, in the I'll read you a scripture real quick. It, it's uh, this is in Third Nephi twenty eight. So this is after the Savior has send it back um, to his father and they're writing about the, the disciples and verse 23, it says, and it came to pass that thus they did go forth among all the people of Nephi and did preach the gospel of Christ unto all people on the face of the land. And they were converted unto the Lord and were united unto the church of Christ. I love that pattern, right? Mm-hmm. First, First and foremost, they were converted unto the Lord. And after they were converted to the Lord, then 
they were united with the church. Nice. And sometimes we, we flip that, right? We, we, we convert people to the Lord, to the church. Uh, and then we hope somewhere along the line, they'll become converted to, to the savior. But the pattern there is if you're converted to the Lord, then, you know, and, and with the church, you know, and people get hung up on policies and so forth. And I say, you know, where's your conversion? If you're converted to the Lord, then, you know, you recognize to me the the importance of the church is priesthood keys that allow me to participate in ordinances and make covenants. That's, that's the primary reason of the church. You know, we're having a discussion with the youth recently. We're talking about the purpose of baptism. You know, the article of faith, you know, the prophet emphasized that baptism was for the remission of sins. It doesn't say for membership in the church, right? When, when Joseph and Oliver were baptized, they weren't, they weren't members of any church. They weren't baptized. The church didn't exist, right? It hadn't been organized yet. Right. Right. They, you know, they were seeking a remission of their sins. And so when you make that connection, that if, if the purpose of baptism is for a remission of your sins, then that's the purpose of the sacrament, right? If we're renewing that covenant, then we go each week. And that's why you don't want to miss church. That's why you don't want to miss the ordinance of the sacrament, because you have an opportunity, again, repeatedly, for a remission of your sins. Um, and I just think that's such an important um, doctrinal understanding. My, <laughs> my father-in-law passed away uh, about seven years ago, but he was a great gospel scholar and he loved to teach the gospel. And one of his favorite trick, he, he called it his favorite trick question. <laughs> he's teaching Sunday school or a priesthood or whatever. He would ask members, he'd say, what's the first principle of the gospel? And invariably somebody will quickly say faith. Right. And he would, he would say wrong. <laughs> the first principle of the gospel is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not faith. Yeah. It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's an important distinction, right? Yeah. I love that. And the same with, you know, when we say baptism, it's not baptism. It's baptism for the remission of sins, uh, which again goes to this, you know, I've been engrossed uh, daily now in preach my gospel. Right. Um, and the purpose of a missionary, you know, is to invite others to come to Christ and, and to live the, the doctrine of Christ. And I was talking to my brother-in-law who's serving as a mission president, um, down in Mexico right now. And one of the things that he's taught the missionaries there is that, you know, in, 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 um, third Nephi 11, when the savior talks about the, the his doctrine, right. He says, mm-hmm. and this is my doctrine. And then, and then he clarifies, he says, and this is the doctrine which the father hath given unto me. Right. So whose doctrine is it? <laughs> it's the father's doctrine. Right. Yeah. Right. And that, but his point is that the savior lived it right he he believed in had faith in his heavenly father he he didn't repent like we think of repentance because he didn't need to repent but he did change right he he did he didn't receive a fullness at first as john teaches he he grew he learned um and so he was baptized he received the gift of the holy ghost 
and he endured to the end perfectly. Yeah. Uh, so he lived it. So he could say, this is my doc because he was, he, he took possession of it. Right. And I, and he said, how important that is for us to do the same thing. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could turn to our children and say, this is my doc, right? This yeah. is the doctrine that the savior has given to me. It's a doctrine that the father gave to the savior and we take possession of that. Um, but I, I love that they're the brethren. I think as we watch general conference and their teachings, we see that the, the gospel doctrines and principles are interconnected. You, you can't teach one. I remember in a priesthood leadership meeting here in Richmond back in 2014, it's just about a month before I became state president, Elder Bednar was here. And one of the comments he made was we have to stop stovepiping the gospel, right? Mm-hmm. We, we talk about missionary work and then we talk about temple and family history. And, and now we see, you know, how that has, and president Nelson has, you know, stressed it and taught it so beautifully is it's all one work. It's all the same. Um, and we've got to stop stovepiping it. So I, I like the thought of it being all interconnected. Yeah. Yeah. That this is a uh, one doctrine and it's a, uh... It's a Christ doctrine that was came from the father, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that. Exactly. So I'm just curious, like walking into this uh, next role, you know, this is obviously a full-time role for three years. And, um, you know, if there's any organization or program or whatnot, that is at least somewhat familiar or similar to a military process, you know, this, you know, full-time missionaries might be it to me kind of served, uh, you know, in that way, helped me grow up and, you know, it was an intense experience and whatnot. I, I would assume I'd have a, a similar or more intense experience with the military and whatnot, but nonetheless, it was a very formative experience for me and, and many others. And so, I mean, what are your thoughts? Uh, and uh, we all know that we're completely naive to these roles until we're about six, <laughs> seven months into them. But I mean, just yeah. for the sake of discussion here, what, what are you thinking like walk, walking into this and, and should your missionaries be <laughs> intimidated by your, by your, uh, your Marine experience here? <laughs> Well, interestingly enough, if you've noticed, and maybe maybe this uh, I've gone against that for for doing an interview, but uh, <laughs> you, you notice that when they when they do your bios now in the church news, they don't they, it doesn't it doesn't say what your profession was. Oh yeah, yeah, they used to. Yeah, huh. they used to always have the, you know your profession, but you know, now with mission presence, they don't. Um, but uh, that aside, I think. Um, I was joking with my sons. I said, you know, I was going through the, the, the missionary handbook, you know, it says you get, get up, get up at six 30. And I'm thinking six 30. You know, Reveille was always at five. Why, why are we sleeping in for an hour and a half? Oh boy. <laughs> nice. You're going to have them running on the beach, you know, that, that won't, that won't be a change that, w- that we'll make, but uh, we had a good laugh about it anyway. And, yeah. Uh, nice. My, my one of my sons said, "Dad, you'll be the only mission president will be uh, sent home a day after you get there." You know, but. <laughs> nice. And I mean, speaking of like sending home, I mean that's a big concern nowadays. Of you know, just this, uh, you know, seems like a larger group of missionaries. Obviously, with the age change, I mean, there's a lot of variables uh, to look at. But it seems like more and more with mental health and whatnot, you know, anxieties and whatnot, that a lot of missionaries are returning home and yeah. and. Uh, obviously in the military, you know, if you can't cut it, you can't cut it and off you go. I assume, I don't know, but I'm sure they'll, they'll work with you, but, um, 
I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that as far as like helping these young men find success or and young women find success um, in the mission field? Uh, that's to me, it's the primary purpose mm. uh, is to do everything that we can as husband and wife to, to help love, love them and help them and do everything we can to, to keep them there. Uh, and, and, help them to know that the Lord is, is there and, and help them find a way to better tap into that, uh, to receive his help, um, and to feel of his love and, and mercy and, and, and realize that, uh, they can do it. Um, and, and there is a lot of help. Uh, there's, there's, there's counselors, there's, and the church has done just an incredible job of, of making that more and more available and, and, and a lot more help to mission presence than there were even just, you know, four or five years ago, um, what's out there now. So I think, uh, that that's to me, uh, you know, I, I had an experience as state president. I had a young man that was serving and boy, he wasn't out. I don't think six weeks and the mission president called me. <laughs> mm. and we joke about this, but man, as a state president, you just hate getting calls from mission presidents because <laughs> <laughs> it's never good. They never call you up to tell you, Hey, just want to let you know what a great job this missionary is doing. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you should try but, that. See how it goes. Yeah. yeah I, I've made a note, I, I, you know, but you know, they, you know, a lot of them that I've mentioned it to, they all say, yeah, I, we should, I should do that. Um, but they've got their hands full. Um, but anyway, he called and, and, you know, we, we, we worked with this missionary and, you know, about six months later, he called me again and I uh, was having struggles. And about the third time he called with this missionary, I, I remember I, I said to him, I said, president, I said, you've done all you can send him home. You know, I'm thinking about his companion. I'm thinking about, you know, the, the impact it has to the work. I said, just send him home. And he said, well, he said, no, he said, I'm, I'm not quite ready to do that. Hmm. And he made it. He served his complete mission. He served two years. He came home. He was a changed person. He wasn't the same young man that, that I set apart. And a couple months ago, I, I, I called that mission president up. And I told him, I said, I just done a temple recommend interview with this young man. And he was going off to college. And he's just in a good place. Hmm. I, I said, I just want to thank you for hanging in there um, and, and doing all you could. I said, and I, and I had received my call then. So I knew, and I told him, I said, you're, you're a great example and inspiration to me. Every time <laughs> I'm looking across at a, at a missionary, the thoughts of them going home, I'm going to think of this mission president and say, okay, what else can we do? Um, and, you know, I, I'm excited about, you mentioned some of the military things. One of the fun things in the military was uh, surprise inspections. Oh yeah. <laughs> if you really want to know how things really look, you know, you know, if you, if you tell them in advance, there's going to be an inspection on such and such a day, you know, they're going to get ready for it. Right. They're going to prepare for it. So one of the things that, that I want to do as a mission president is uh, I'll probably give them a little bit of heads up in the beginning, but down the road, I, I probably won't. I just want to walk in at, you know, eight thirty in the morning and say, I'm here for companion study. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> nice. 
and, nice. and that I think I'll learn more about missionaries and, and how the work's going that way than I ever will in any zone conference. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And if, especially if they're still in bed at eight 30, right? So. <laughs> nice. Well, uh, you know, Bart, this has been awesome. Just exploring these, these dynamics from, you know, the leadership with the Marines to church leadership and these principles and whatnot. What, what are we missing before we wrap up? I got one more question for you, but anything we're missing before, before we wrap up. No, I, it, you know, I, I love the simplicity of going back to, you know, you got to really care about them, uh, whether that's a member of your ward or a member of your mission or your member of your team that, that you work with. Uh, you know, that's universal. You got to care about them. You got to care about their family yeah. and uh, being fair and being consistent with people. You know, it's most adults have had the experience of working with somebody that's not consistent. And boy, that's hard. Right. When you don't, you know, if you've ever worked for a Jekyll Hyde kind of person, you don't know who's behind the door when you walk in in the morning. That's tough. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, the, when you when you think of following the Savior, you know, we, we know that the Savior is consistent. He's he was loving. He was caring. He, he truly cared about. Um, I mean, we see that throughout his ministry um, of truly caring about individuals and their families. And, and that makes all the difference. Awesome. Well, our last question I have for you is as you reflect on your time uh, in leadership, both with the, the military and in church leadership, how has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? Um, yeah, I, I think one of the things that, that I've often thought about, um, right, there's a lot of different echelons of command. Right. We're talking about platoon, company, battalion, regiment, division, so forth. Uh, in the church, you know, you got ward stakes, so forth. There was a in, in combat operations center from the time from the battalion level on up. We always had a sign somewhere in the operations center. There was a sign. Sometimes it was just made on a on a cardboard box and sometimes it was, you know, something a little more official, but it would say. What do I know? Who needs to know it? Have I told them? Right. Hmm. What do I know? Who needs to know it? Have I told them? You can save yourself a lot of, a lot of heartache, a lot of headache <laughs> by following, just, just following that. And it's true in the church and it's true. And, and one of the key things in those that I, it sometimes take, took me longer than it should have to learn is it, always assume that higher headquarters knows something you don't know hmm. and always assume that your subordinate commands know something you don't know. Right. And because that's the truth that, you know, at, at the ground level, there are things going on that you don't have a full picture on and higher headquarters are seeing and hearing some things that you don't. And, and you realize in the church that that's true in, in all leadership. You know, that's why, the councils are so important, whether it's a bishopric meeting or a young men's presidency or a ward council, state council, it's that. And so when you realize that the source of which we're seeking that inspiration is the Lord and he knows all things. And so the beauty of the councils that I think in leadership that helps me follow Christ better is to realize that in the discussion, 
the inspiration and revelation will come. You know, President Nelson has said, you know, good, good revelation uh, is dependent on good communication. And it is, as you have these discussions, then, and you counsel back and forth with one another, then the Lord is able to steer you in the right direction and, and you, you'll, you'll hear it, you'll feel it, and you'll see it um, by having, having the discussion. If you don't have the discussion, if you don't have the counsel, you're often not going to find it. <laughs> so I think, uh, yeah, I think leadership is realizing that we don't know it all uh, and the Lord does. And if we'll go to him and be humble, uh, prayerful, then he will, in his in his timing, uh, make it known to us. And sometimes, you know, of course, we want everything right now, and that's not always how he works. In fact, it's usually not how he works. And that concludes this How I Lead interview. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I would ask you, could you take a minute and drop this link in an email on social media in a text, wherever it makes the most sense and share it with somebody who could relate to this this experience. And this is how we how we develop as leaders just hearing what the other guys doing trying some things out testing adjusting for your area. And uh, that's that's where great leaderships discovered, right? So we would love to have you uh, share this with uh, somebody in this calling or a related calling, and that would be great. And also, if you know somebody, uh, any type of leader, who would be a fantastic guest on the How I Lead segment, uh, reach out to us. Go to leadingsaints.org slash contact. Maybe send this in individual an email, letting them know that you're going to be suggesting their name for this interview. We'll reach out to them and uh, see if we can line them up. So again, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact. And there you can submit all the information and let us know. And maybe they will be on a future How I Lead segment on the Leading Saints podcast. And remember to review the Mentally Healthy Saints library, click the link in the show notes or go to leadingsaints.org slash 14. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.